Well, to begin and to make a point this morning, I'm going to ask you to pretend that it's 1940. You've perhaps moved to the outskirts of Vienna, Austria, and the Nazis have invaded and now occupy your beloved city that you call home. Most of your relatives have vanished. Many have been arrested secretly in the cover of darkness by armed soldiers. Others have been arrested in the full light of day. You've heard the stories of a quiet church service interrupted with shouting, armed soldiers barking out orders, everyone onto your feet, now, form a line. You're about to be interrogated. Babies crying, not sure what this is all about. Children scared, wondering what's happening. You might have heard that they were ushered into buses and given the option to either deny their belief in Jesus or die. And so you make the painful decision to gather your family, to flee your comfortable home under the cover of darkness, to take refuge in a remote cottage far away in the mountains. And the night before you planned your escape, you are awakened by a strange presence in your room. In a moment, fear grips you. Who's in your room? What do they want? Who is it? Where's my family? Is everyone okay? But then the voice says, Arise, go to a street named Wickenburg, to the home of Franz Kaiser. And when you enter there, you find a man from Brauno in Upper Austria. His name is Adolf Hitler. And the voice says, I've appeared to him, and he's now praying. He's blind, and I've revealed myself to him. Go and touch him, and he will regain his eyesight, and he will save your people. I don't know about you, but I would sit rather stunned, desperately trying to make sense of what I just heard. I mean, after all, the heart of Vienna is crawling with grim-faced Nazis carrying loaded weapons. Their orders are to seek out and capture Jews. Is this some kind of setup? But the voice was authentic. And you sensed the power and the presence of the Lord. And so here's the question. Would you go? Can you imagine yourself coming out of hiding, risking your life, as you creep your way down a dark Vienna street and knock on a door of someone you don't know. This morning, we're continuing with our series on Paul, a man of grace and grit. And in our first sermon, it was entitled, No Insignificant Grace. And in that sermon, we were first introduced to Saul. First time in Scripture that we come across him anywhere He's a brutal and bloody individual who stands nodding in agreement and guarding their garments while they stone God's prophet, Stephen. I mean, Saul looks more like a terrorist than a devout follower of Judaism. But in that first message, we learn that no matter how you appear to others today, everyone has a past. Secondly, we learn that no amount or depth of sin in your past can trump the grace of God. And we also saw how even though your past is soiled, anyone can find a new beginning with God. Part two, a few weeks ago, prominent and proud to desperate and dependent. Saul's murderous journey was brought to a divine halt, you recall. 
He was so zealous, he was traveling 150 miles from Jerusalem to Damascus to persecute the followers of the way of Jesus. When suddenly he's knocked from his horse, the bright line shone, and he heard Jesus, and he recognized his face. And the words came, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Without warning, the course of Saul's life changed dramatically. This jolt stopped him in his tracks, literally. Who are you, sir? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And what were these goads, these constant pricks to his conscience? And last time we saw the goad of Jesus' life and words. It's very likely that Saul heard Jesus teach and preach in public places. How was that impacting him as he rehearsed some of those things that he had heard? There was the goad of Stephen's peaceful death. And then, of course, there was the goad of Christians' courageous faith as over and over and over again. They stood for truth. They stood for God's Word. They stood for the fulfillment of prophecy in what they believed was the Messiah that was spoken of. And so today, part three, entitled, Surprising Elements of God's Will. And in today's piece, I'm sure you've picked up on where we're going. But if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at the next event in the story. And for that, I invite you to turn. I hope you brought your Bibles this morning in Acts chapter 9 as we pick up where we left off. We're in Acts chapter 9, beginning verse 6. In fact, we could even go back to verse 5. And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Verse 6, So he, Saul, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him, verse 7, stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul rose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And lastly, verse 9, And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Imagine just a few moments before, hours before, joking, carrying on, riding his horse, beautiful day, and now Saul has been incredibly humbled. He can't see. He can't find the city on his own. People are having to take him there by hand. Watch your step here, Saul. We're going up another step. Just hours ago, Saul was invincible, and now he's blind and so humbled by what has taken place, so humbled by the voice, so humbled by the thought of what he has been doing. We see here he's not taking any food. And in fact, he's not even drinking anything. No food, no water. For three days, one could make the case that Saul has lost his will to live. Stricken with blindness, helpless, tortured by remorse, knowing not what further judgment might be in store for him. And I imagine those three days of soul agony felt more like years. Again and again, he must have recalled 
with anguish of spirit, words he had heard of Jesus. His part in the martyrdom of Stephen, even when his face had been lighted with radiance of heaven and in darkness and blindness and sadness and brokenness of spirit, he's left to these thoughts, recounting the many times he had closed his eyes and ears against the most striking evidences and had relentlessly urged on the persecution of the believers of this same Jesus of Nazareth. Where was he to go now? Who was to be his friend and his support? His current life was shown to be utterly wrong. He had persecuted the true God. Those he pursued, they surely would not accept him. And so broken and alone, he is fasting, wishing he could die and appealing for the mercies of God. And then enters a new character in our story. Verse 10, now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. Verse 11, so the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Now, Ananias knew about Saul like a raging bull charging loose in the streets. This man with Hitler-like determination, he was the reason Ananias was in hiding. It's no wonder that Ananias respectfully presses the issue. Verse 13, then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. Interesting how the Lord can respond so decisively, so directly, so succinctly, go. I mean, this is calling for real faith, isn't it? An absolute trust in God. But often when God makes his will plain, in our humanness, we are reluctant to obey, aren't we? I still have questions. I still have doubts. I still have fears. You haven't explained everything yet. But oftentimes, God works on a need-to-know basis, and oftentimes, we don't need to know. Go. But sensing Ananias' need for more information, God gives a few more details. It says, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Don't miss that small word there in verse 15. The word is chosen. Jesus chose Saul long before Saul chose Jesus. Isn't that right? It was the same with the disciples. You remember this verse? says, you did not choose me, said Jesus to his disciples, but I have chosen you and have set you apart. Friends, God is always there first. 
If you think in some way, some shape, some form, you are there first, you are mistaken. Let me disabuse you of that notion. God is always there first, seeking to save those that are lost. And Ananias needed to know that God had chosen Saul. Saul was now going to be his instrument. And yes, God could have healed Saul completely on his own with another flash of light. Yes, Jesus could have raised up his church without his disciples. And the reality exists that God could finish the work without us. But in God's sovereign plan, he calls for the presence of Ananias. He calls Ananias to be part of the divine equation, just as he did the disciples, just as he does us today. Can you imagine the shock Ananias must have felt? Saul, the merciless, vicious, murderous man who has killed in cold blood countless innocent Christians, He has been chosen to be an ambassador for Christ. But what did Saul himself later write? 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You say, I can't do it. I can't be of any help. I'm weak. I'm foolish. And God says, perfect, I've chosen you. Yes, God chose Saul to be his ambassador. So going back to our story, verse 15, so the Lord said to Ananias, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. There's another word we don't want to miss. Suffering or suffer. Through the ages, suffering has been God's taming ground for raging bulls, the crucible of pain and hardship, God's schoolroom, if you will. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't want to get sidetracked here. I don't believe God causes suffering a good bit of the time. I think he allows it to come as a means to refine us. It is often in the hardship where the Christian learns humility, compassion, patience, grace, And it's in those moments of crisis where our character is stretched. Anybody here been stretched? It was true for Abraham, Joseph, Moses, the disciples, for Saul, and it's the same for us. Years later, Saul attested to the fact that suffering had been his companion. We'll flip over to 2 Corinthians very quickly here on the screen. Chapter 11, verse 23 and 24. You've undoubtedly heard and, and know this list. I have, Saul or Paul is speaking of his own experience. I have been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Why minus one? Because 40 is supposed to kill you. Five times, he says. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. 
I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And finally, he says this, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. What suffering has God allowed in your life? Maybe it's an illness, a handicap, a loss of someone close to you. Maybe you were humbled in your career. Maybe it's a financial crisis. Maybe medical bills that keep piling up. Maybe it's a marriage that's not going anything like you intended for it to go. Perhaps you're embarrassed by the choices of your own children. You did all you knew to raise them the right way and to bring them up in the Lord, and now they've chosen a different path, and it rips your heart out. But it's these experiences, this suffering that brings us to our knees. I'm thinking of a young man, a seminary student. He was ecstatic at the birth of his first child. Weeks later, only to be stunned by the news that his wife had leukemia. Two years later, after a failed bone marrow transplant, after months of excruciating radiation and expensive chemotherapy, which ravaged her already frail frame, that beautiful wife and mother slipped away, gone forever from his side. A toddling child, a broken-hearted husband, remaining to pick up their shattered pieces or the shattered pieces of his life. And what's the rest of the story? The rest of the story is the young man entered seminary as a raging bull, full of dreams and ambition and confident in his own abilities, but he walked out a bleeding lamb, convinced more than ever of his need for the grace of Jesus. Friends, suffering changed him. Suffering has changed me. And I would wager to say suffering changes everyone. And while I don't understand all the reasons why we suffer for Jesus, I do know it's part of God's sovereign plan to prepare us to be his instruments of grace to a harsh and desperate world. And some of you here, you just want to cry out and you want to say, but that's not fair. No, it's not. But where would we be without the suffering of Paul in the Scriptures? Where would we be without the suffering of John the Revelator? Where would we be without the suffering of Daniel the prophet? The suffering of Job or of Moses or of Joseph? Folks, where would we be without the suffering of Jesus? No, it's never been fair. But at times it's necessary to bring about God's end and final result in this great controversy. This is not a game. The devil is playing for keeps. And our example, Jesus said, if I have to suffer, so be it. Not my will, but yours be done. And so in coming back to our story, it was the suffering of Paul that brought him from a raging bull to a bleating lamb. Reading verse 15 and 16 again, but the Lord said to him, Ananias, go for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, the children of Israel, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. 
And continuing on, verse 17, and Ananias went his way and entered the house. We could say, so Ananias went or Ananias departed. Somewhere between fearful confusion and quiet resolve, he stepped out of his place of safety into the dark and dangerous streets to Straight Street, still there today. And he knocked on the door. Silence. He knocked again. And just then, Judas unlocked the large wooden door and said, we've been expecting you. Come on in. The door squeaks open and he walks into a room lit only by the flicker of candles, stooping once to go under a low overhang, glancing to the far corner of the room. And there he fixes his gaze on a frail figure of a man, bent low and on his knees praying. And this is his first glimpse of Saul of Tarsus. And he walks over and says, let's read about it. Verse 17, he went in and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. What a moment. All because he ignored his fears, he stepped out in faith, in full obedience to God's surprising command. I would say this is most definitely one of the greatest blessings of being part of God's work to see the scales of deception fall off from people's eyes, to see them transform before your eyes and say, I see, to see their excitement and their joy and their peace, their total transformation. And it's not you, it's all God, but he has chosen you to be a witness to them. And it's incredible. It's a life-transforming power of the gospel. And it's an incredibly moving experience and an honor to witness. Some of you here have taken that challenge of studying the Bible with people, and you have seen this take place firsthand, and it's incredible. I can sense your excitement when I talk to you. I imagine some of you are like me. I doubt all the time. This will never work, I say to myself. They will never accept this. They'll never make this change. But then I see the scales fall from their eyes and they see things more clearly from God's word and they're forever changed. And it's beautiful and it's amazing and it's beyond words. And then you watch this person being baptized to be assimilated into the body of believers, to be active in ministry, a reproducing disciple of Jesus. And all you can say is, this is amazing. I want to do it again. John Stott, in his commentary of these verses, says this, this laying on of hands was a gesture of love to a blind man who could not see the smile on Ananias' face, but could feel the pressure of his hands. 
At the same time, Ananias addressed him as Brother Saul, or Saul, my brother. He writes, I never failed to be moved by these words. They may well have been the first words which Saul heard from Christian lips after his conversion, and they were words of fraternal welcome. Some have called Ananias one of the forgotten heroes of faith. There are countless numbers of them serving Christ behind the scenes the world over. I can think of many in this church faithfully fulfilling their duty to make sure things run smoothly in a quiet way, in a humble way, not seeking any attention, receiving no thank yous. But they don't do it for that. They do it simply because it's what God asked them to do. And none will ever know until eternity the enormity of the investment in the cause for Christ that these forgotten heroes of faith have made. And so we continue to see what Paul, or Saul, we should say, does. Verse 19, it says, So when he had received food, he was strengthened. Then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on his name in Jerusalem and has come here for the purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. I mean, this transformation is stunning. The people were amazed. The Greek word, actually, is where we get the word ecstatic from. They couldn't believe it. And Saul was confounding the Jews as he proved that Jesus was the Christ. He knew all their logic, and so nobody could argue with him in any way, shape, or form. It was compelling It wove together the Old Testament scriptures in defense of Christ as the Messiah. And so immediately he begins to preach. People are amazed. People are ecstatic. The Jews are confounded. Yes, God had chosen Saul. Another quote that I like, a general slain in battle is lost to his army, but his death gives no additional strength to the enemy. True statement, isn't it? But when a man of prominence joins the opposing force, not only are his services lost, but those whom he joins himself gain a decided advantage, end quote. God in his providence not only spared Saul's life, but converted him, thus transferring a champion from the side of the enemy to the side of Christ. And so some surprising elements of God's will, four of them, and then we're done. I don't know how, but potluck's wafting all the way up from the parking lot. Surprise number one, surprises are always part of God's leading. Have you noticed that? In Saul's case, the surprise came in the form of light from heaven. For Ananias, the surprise was, was unreasonable logic and an illogical command from the Lord. Hebrews 11, verse 8, that Monroe read to us, By faith Abraham, when called to go, 
obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. This is incredible to me. All Abraham knew was that God wanted him to move. He didn't have a clue where he was going. Nothing about the weather there, the crime rate, the cost of living, nothing. He only knew God told him to go. And friends, if you and I are waiting for God to fill in all the details, we're never going to take that first step of faith. You must be prepared to trust his plan, knowing it will be full of surprises, but that he'll take care of the details. But surprises are always part of God's leading. When I look back at, how, at my life and how it was supposed to go, you ever do that? Not even close. I could get into that, but I won't. God knows best. Amen? Surprise number two. Surprises always intensify our need for faith. At times, God's plan will frighten you. At times, you will feel intimidated by its demands. Other times, you're going to be absolutely disappointed. Has God ever told you no? Wait, sit tight. In those times, you and I are oftentimes tempted to argue. Sometimes you may be tempted to fight back. Maybe you want to negotiate with God. Have you ever thought of this, God? You might even get angry. But friends, when faith kicks in, none of those impulses will control you. Faith says, we can do this. In the first house we bought years ago, we did a significant amount of remodeling before we even moved into the house. And one of the projects was taking down a wall and, and redistributing the wires that were in the wall and the air intake and all that stuff, and also some recessed lighting in the kitchen and all this kind of thing. Well, it was the lighting that we were working on on that particular night. It was late at night. I'm thinking it was probably 10, 30, 11. We started early. And so it's Elizabeth's dad and I, and he's up in the, the crawl space of the attic where it's hot. It's a summer day or summer night, I should say, but it's still hot. And he's trying to put a light on the far end where this, the, the roof is coming down and the ceiling's coming over. And so you find yourself wedged in this crack. And I know what it was like because I tried to do it as well. We're trying to get certain wires connected. We're hot. We're breathing insulation. Does this help to act it out? And so you're trying to get these things together and they don't ever want to come together just right. And your muscles are getting sore and you have to just wait. Then you have to try again. And this went on and on and we were ready to be done. We were over it. And I remember Elizabeth's dad came up with this phrase, if you will. We can do this. We can do this. We can do this. And the we wasn't necessarily he and I. It was the we like, God's going to help us. We're going to do this. And in the years that have passed, we still oftentimes will look at one another and he'll grin or I'll grin and he'll say, we can do this. By God's grace, we can do this. And I imagine it's quite possible God has a major move for you in the future. His will for our lives are full of surprises. I think God has more moves for us than we can possibly anticipate. 
Perhaps that's why it's on a need-to-know basis. And they're not all geographical moves. That's what we think of. But many are attitude adjustments. Moving out of our comfort zone to touch the lives of people we've never met. Or we might be in for a cross-country, cross-cultural journey that will stretch us. Be careful about feeling too settled where you are. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, or geographically. If the Lord wants you to move, I strongly suggest you cooperate. Regardless of the risk. If he leads you to change, then change. Surprises from God always intensify our need for faith. Two more. Stepping out in faith always brings clarification of God's plan. As Ananias stepped out in faith, he saw more clearly God's great purpose for Saul. And as Saul submitted himself to the ministry of Ananias, he found out more about God's plan for his life. You are a chosen vessel of mine. I'm going to use you to bear my name. Saul didn't know any of that before. And those, that clarity doesn't come until you take that step of faith. And lastly, obedience always stimulates growth. Just to let you know, the rights have grown deeper in our relationship with the Lord. Having trusted Him without first knowing all the details. Maybe you could say the same. But obeying God drives the roots of your faith much deeper. And that obedience stimulates growth in every area of life. We are stretched emotionally, often physically, but most importantly, spiritually. Ananias' compliance with God's surprising plan allowed him to witness supernatural power. No one else in Scripture witnessed anything like scales miraculously falling from this Pharisee's eyes. Only Ananias. And as a result, I imagine his own eyes were opened to the amazing power of God to transform a life. Obedience always stimulates growth. So the question is, what's the next step? Could it be that something in your life has blinded you to God's power, to God's leading and perhaps the path is clear, but you're fearful. You're paralyzed with the uncertainty of it all. But I want to challenge you to let go of that thing you've been scared to give to him. To let go of control of your future, your plans, your dreams. Recognizing that your heavenly father wants to give good gifts to you, his children. How does the verse go in the Gospels? As an earthly father, we know how to give good gifts to our children. Do we give a rock or a snake? No. How much more our heavenly father wants to give good gifts to his children, to those that ask? Don't let your fear hinder from obeying God's clear leading. Step out in faith. Trust him with your future. And only eternity will reveal the impact of your memorable step of faith. In the quietness of your own heart, say, Lord, 
I surrender this thing to you, this fear to you, this unknown to you, but I know that you're calling me in this direction. And so without all the details, without everything in place as I would want it to be, I'm going to step out in faith and I'm going to go in obedience to your call. Dear Heavenly Father, that is the prayer of our hearts this morning. It can be challenging at times to decipher your will, and we can find ourselves studying your word and praying and asking that you will make it plain. But oftentimes we're waiting and we're waiting. But Lord, there are other times when you make your will abundantly plain, but then we're fearful to move forward, to take that first step of faith. And so, Lord, I believe there's somebody here that you have been leading, you've been prompting, they've been kicking at the goads, if you will, and your voice has been speaking ever so plainly, but they're afraid to move forward, to take that first step of faith, to be obedient. I pray that this morning that they will simply choose, Lord, I'll do it. It might be speaking to a colleague. It might be changing schools. It might be breaking up with a boyfriend, a girlfriend. It could be any host of things, but they're saying this morning, by raising their hand right now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, they just want to say, Lord, I've heard your voice this morning. And I want to say, okay, I'll go. Lord, help us in this journey of faith as we seek to follow your will and your plan. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.